Morning. Open with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 32 this morning. Wrapping up chapter 1 today, this, this week. Moving on to chapter 2. Um, I think it's imperative for us to look at chapter 2 as we begin today. Because the argument that he's been making in chapter 1 flows right into chapter 2, which we'll look at next week. And it also helps us to know why is Paul writing what he's writing in verses 28 through 32. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges or who condemns other people. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We'll stop there. Last week was a sermon. Everybody is kind of like, yeah. This week, let me just go ahead and give you the punchline. You're no different than the homosexuals. Just so you know. That's Paul's point in these verses. Where he gives the longest vice list in all of the New Testament. And so I I wanted that to just kind of go ahead and be up front so that you're not shocked by it later. Because when he says in verse 32, uh, speaking of, of those who practice these vices, that those who practice such things, they know the righteous decree deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's important for us to realize there are things that We may be prone to practice. I pray that you don't practice it. Any of these things on the vice list. We'll we'll commit some of these things at times. But none of them should be the practice of your life. We as a people, not as the people of God, but as mankind, are inclined to not Believe in God. That is the natural inclination of men. Our natural inclination is to not believe in God. The chaos that exists in our world is the result of deliberate atheism. Deliberate atheism. I think it was J.B. Phillips who put that as the heading of this section of Scripture in his own translation. That's what Paul's talking about all through this section, verses 18 through 32. Deliberate atheism. It starts off with God has made himself known. He's made himself known. To the point where nobody has an excuse to say there is no God. He has revealed himself. 
By the way, folks, that's an incredible mercy that he revealed himself. God is under no obligation to make himself known to us, but he did. He made himself known in nature. He made himself known by putting, uh, imprinting uh, his image on us and giving us a conscience that longs for him. And most specifically, he revealed himself to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But man has consistently rejected not only the truth about God, but God himself. Paul here is sharing why he's eager to preach the gospel at Rome and why we should be eager to preach the gospel throughout the world and eager to preach the gospel where we live, right here. But he's also making clear that although sin matters very little to man, it matters a lot to God. You don't know how it matters? Do you know how I know that it matters? He has set a day to judge sin. He has set a day of judgment. And so it matters a lot to God. But here in these passages, we see something else. Not only will the wrath of God be made known at the end in a day of judgment. But I want us to know also that uh, the wrath of God and the judgment is in the present as well. And that's what we're going to see in this text today. We consider this by looking at how, uh, at, at these things. First of all, my first point is I want us to look at God on trial. God being on trial. Secondly, I want us to consider the consequences of an untested mind. An untested mind. An unqualified mind. Third, I want us to see the result of an unnatural affection. An unnatural affection is the result of putting God on trial. You say, what are you talking about God on trial? Well, look with me at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, we'll stop there. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. The, the, the New International Version, 1984 edition, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. It's a good translation. The knowledge that he's given, the knowledge that he has made known, the evidence that is clear concerning God and His righteousness and His holiness and His divine power, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge it, well, how did they do that? 
Well, one, they did it through idolatry. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And two, they gave themselves over to, uh, to deplorable sexual immoralities, such as homosexuality and all kinds of fornication. That's the evidence that they didn't consider knowing God worthwhile. That word to see fit in the ESV. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Dakimatsu is the Greek word. Not that that sounds like anything. But it means to examine, to test, to approve. To see if something is qualified for its purpose. It is to judge the worth of something. Is this worth me purchasing it? Me buying it? This car, this appliance... Is it worth my time? Is it worth listening to this person? Is it worth knowing this one who has made himself known? They check to see, put God on trial. Are you qualified to tell me what to do? Would be the question there. Indeed, yes, God is qualified. He made everything, right? He owns it all. You are not your own. If you are born again, you were bought with a price. You were created by the hands of God. It's you are His to do with what He wills. Some of us that are to frighten us. I grew up in the age when Toy Story was a really funny cartoon. Okay, I hadn't seen all the other ones, but I remember Toy Story and Buzz Lightyear and Woody. And Woody, of course, was. Andy's favorite toy. And then come Buzz. Right? I mean, Buzz Lightyear had flashing things. Its wings would pop out like this. Woody had some Jealousy and some concern at first. It was probably well-founded. Because one day, Woody got tossed off the bed and Buzz Lightyear got put up on the pillows. And he looked and he, Woody looked at Buzz and he noticed something on Buzz's foot was written the name 
Andy. You write your name on what you own. I remember Woody looking at his own foot and seeing Andy on there. Andy had the right to take Woody and toss him aside and put Buzz on the pillow. He had the right to do whatever he willed. God has written his own image on mankind. And he has every right to tell us what to do and how to live. And to listen to the insane voices of the world around us instead of God is a fatal exchange. People love, we love our autonomy. May I help you to understand there's a sense in which your autonomy is totally imagined. Because God is sovereign. The trial unfolds throughout this passage in chapter 1, from verse 18. We see the arguments for God. He presents evidence in nature, in our conscience, in the gospel. And then all these things point to the evidence that he is worthy to be praised. And then we see the arguments against God. Well, not really arguments. Instead, what we see is we see a withholding or a suppression of evidence. Evidence that never makes it to the floor. Because mankind suppresses it and exchanges it for lies. And therefore, we see God on trial. The final argument here in these verses that we're looking at today is that God is not worthy of my allegiance. And so what is the result of that? It says, following that, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Debased. What does it mean to have an untested, unqualified mind? God gave them up to a debased mind. This word has the same Greek root as dokimazo. It just has an A in front of it that negates or pushes against the meaning. So it means to have an untested mind, a 
worthless mind. It's of no use to them. This is what they want. He gave them over. Y'all remember what that means? He didn't merely let go of the boat going upstream. He gave it a little push. This is a mind that cannot perceive and understand the truth that God has revealed. He turned them over to this point where, you know, it's evident, but I'm not going to look at it anymore. It's not worth my time to consider that. I mean, God has revealed his righteousness, but they can't see it. They can't understand it. Mankind can't comprehend it. Apart from God's wonderful grace and mercy to open their eyes that they could see. He revealed his righteousness, and with his righteousness comes some demands, right? I'm a holy God. What does he say? Be holy just as I am holy. So he calls us into righteous, these righteous demands. You shall have no other gods before me. What's the first thing we do? Have other gods before him. You shall not covet. Oh, well, I'm already doing that. I mean, that's what we discover. We discover that all these things are in us, unrighteousness. And in verse 17 of of chapter 1, what we discover, it it tells us that the righteousness that he asks of us, he gives to us by faith. In other words, you have no righteousness to give him. You have no means to meet the righteous demands. None of us do. No one in mankind does. And so this gracious, loving, merciful God, what does he do? He gives us what we need through faith. And that is righteousness. Righteousness that comes from him. Righteousness that is through Jesus Christ. But what does man do with that? He suppresses this. He scoffs at such nonsense that a creator God has any right to demand anything from us. The result of that is moral chaos. Look at verse 29. Verse 28 says that they... They have a debased mind to do what ought not be done. He handed them over to that. He he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Remember, the pattern of that is they're already doing what ought not to be done. And so he gave them up to it. It goes along. I said it last week. I'll say it again because some people had never heard it before. Sin will take you farther 
than you ever intended to go, and it will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. Now it starts describing what this untested mind brings about. This unqualified mind. Unqualified to what? Unqualified to understand truth. Unqualified to uh, determine or to say what is right and what is wrong. Unqualified to discern the things of this world as opposed to the things of God. Totally unqualified. Totally untested. Totally worthless as it comes and it pertains to the elimination of sin and gaining eternal life. Instead, it moves toward the opposite. And so we have this big vice list. It's like many others, except it's longer than most. So I'm going to go through each and every one of them. No, I'm not really. Because there's like 20 of them, okay? 21, something like that. I'm going to generalize them and categorize them in a sense and help you to see some things on it. Remember, there was first idolatry. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And then there were uh, uh, sexual perversion in verses 26 through 27. And now what we see is how doing what ought not be done contributes to social evils. You can pick up kind of a pattern. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. These four things are pretty general categories, if you will, of how we do what we ought not do. The next thing, you see the, uh, the, the next five revolve around envy and its consequences. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. In other words, those who envy, one of the things that they are capable of is murder. Strife, deceit, and maliciousness. The next 12 of these begin with two words regarding slanderers, gossips. It's about slander. It's about the way we speak to and about people. Boy, don't we live in an age of that. 
uh, I've been attempting uh, to teach logic to some of our young people during our homeschool co-op. And they, they learned a word ad hominem, which is against man. And so basically just arguments, trying to tear down the person who's making the argument. And if y'all haven't noticed, that's about the only argument anybody has anymore. I'm just going to beat you down with my words until you can't stand up anymore. I'm just going to outshout you. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We see with, uh, with these, we see the, that it moves from the slander, moves on, uh, the next four focus on arrogance. Who's haughty and boastful. Notice the one there, inventors of evil. You ever want to know, hey, where did evil come from? We certainly uh, contribute to it. Inventors of ways to exercise the evil in this world. That's what's going on. The last ones are less connected. But the last four, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, the last four seem to be generally referring to a conclusive state of mind that proceeds from an untested mind, from an unqualified mind. We're going to do all these things, and what is it going to prove out? My foolishness, my heartlessness, uh, my faithlessness, my ruthlessness. It's going to prove out that's what I am at heart. I want you all to notice something that he did not put in this list. He didn't put any sexual sins in there. Y'all notice that? Not one. He's already done that quite a bit, actually, in 26 and 27, so that's one reason. But why did he do the sexual sins in one place and these sins in another place? To the Jew, homosexuality was Absolutely abhorrent. I mean, it was something that, you no, know, the Old Testament says you're not going to make it. And that's what it was like. But to the Romans, it was common. And the Roman church was an amalgamation. I mean, it had a whole bunch of folks that were German. <laughs> Roman, not, not German, not German. Roman, I don't know why I went German there. It just comes out sometimes, all right? Every once in a while, I misspeak. Okay, often I misspeak. 
And today I said German instead of Roman. I don't know why. The Romans, it was incredibly common. And the church was filled with those who were of Rome and those who were Jewish. And the Jews were looking at the homosexual practices and going, that's awful. And there was condemnation and so forth. This demonstrates these social evils, but it looks back at that and says, well, there's no sexual sins in this. So I guess the rest of us have a problem also. Are any of these things the practice of your life? Arrogance? Slander? Malice? I want to call attention to one word there in the verse 31. One out of the four that seem to general be looking at a conclusive stake of mind. Because in looking at these things, one thing that we need to understand, the wrath of God is being poured out for such things. And the judgment of God is the immoral acts that people commit. It's not fire raining down. It's the immoral acts of men. That is the wrath of God. That that pervades and causes chaos in everybody, the just and the unjust. Suffer as a result. But as we look at this word heartless, y'all know any heartless people? Come on, you do. I see you thinking. Had a name pop right into your head, I know. Careful, because you might be foolish. <laughs> That's in the list too. But I want to call attention to this word, and this is moving into that third point, an unnatural affection. It's a word that means, in the Greek, unnatural affections. It's not talking about sexual things, though. It's talking about relationships. It follows right after disobedient to parents. The thought behind this term heartless is that Unnatural affections toward others are the result of suppressing the truth of God that has culminated in an unqualified mind. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12.
Look at verse 49. Jesus is speaking here. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. These are the unnatural affections that are being spoken of. There's a natural affection between a father and his son. And between a mother and her daughter. But the truth of the word of God sets them at odds. We look at today and we see the family crumbling in a sense because of a lot of reasons. We can look to homosexuality and see that we have said that marriage, there's such thing as homosexual marriage. No, there's not. Conflict in terms can't be impossible. Okay? But I've seen stats that point to it's over 50%, and I've some see some that say 70% of fatherless homes. Unnatural affections. Of parents who do not exercise their responsibility in raising up their children. We see all the moral things that are going on or immoral things that are going on in our world. And one of them is this. Husbands and wives not living out the roles that God gave them in their home, but in constant turmoil against one another. Not loving one another. Not caring for one another. What happens as a result of an untested mind because we put God on trial and say, we don't need you. One is the disintegration of families. One of the things that's going on here, it seems, is that Paul's making sure we don't spend our days pointing fingers at homosexuals and saying, you're the problem. All of us are the problem. Just to clarify so that you don't think I've gone completely off my rocker, 
Do homosexuals need to repent and turn away from that practice and turn away uh, from being homosexual? And trust Christ? Yes. And unless they repent, they will not be saved. Period. But neither will the one who is arrogant and will not turn away and will not repent of their arrogance or their unlove or their unforgiveness. God comes right out and says, if you don't forgive, there's a clear indication that you're not forgiven. The unqualified mind, well, they hurt me, so I'm just in doing and retaliating against them. No, you're not. Verse 32 helps us to clarify this point. Though they know God's righteous decree, what righteous decree do they know? What righteous decree are they aware of? That those who practice such things deserve to die. He's referring to the whole of the passage, by the way. Idolaters, the sexual perversion, and this list of vices. That all who practice these things, all who live out these things, all those who practice them deserve to die. Everybody. (laughs) You know what's shocking is that any of us will live. And do you know why we'll live? The grace, the mercy, the power of God to save the likes of us for his own purpose and his own possession, that he would love us and that we would love him for all eternity. That's good news, isn't it? He said they deserve to die, people who practice these things. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That thought's going to carry over into chapter 2. And some people say, well, it's just as much as our greater sin to give approval to those who practice them. It's not what it's saying. He clarifies it next. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. I wonder about our own self-righteousness. In seeing the awful sin of homosexuality, that it it does not dim our eyes and cause us to think of our own sinfulness as a trifle compared to.
The danger is not that the LGBTQ agenda would continue to push forward and gain steam and grow as it is doing. The greatest tragedy would be that our focus would be on that and not on how we fail to honor God in gratitude and in thanksgiving. And in doing that, it ought to pour out of our hearts a greater love. I had somebody get mad at me one time. Imagine that. Not just once, but this particular time. And they were railing against the homosexual agenda, against all these things. And they were putting all the all the problems of the world on that one thing. And it really just concerned me. And I had to stop and I had to just let them know. You know, It bothers me that you're so angry about all this LGBTQ agenda. That bothers me. He kind of looked at me funny. And I said, what bothers me about it is that I don't see an inkling of your heart being broken. over how God has been suppressed and pushed aside. I don't see your heart being broken for the souls of men who are clearly bound for hell. How is it that we could have that much error? Instead, the sinfulness of this world, all of it, really should be heartbreaking to us. Because God on trial has not ceased. It's still happening. Men and women everywhere are constantly seeing the evidence and saying, no, thank you. And that really ought to break our hearts. And it ought to put us in a position of where we want to share the gospel. Yeah, but they're not going to listen to us. What a lame excuse. What a lame excuse not to share the gospel. Instead, from broken hearts and hearts that love 
those who have been created in the image of God. Paul says, I'm eager to share the gospel with them. And that's the attitude we should have. Let's pray. Father, your goodness is everlasting. And I pray, God, that you would help us, that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see what cannot be seen, that you would open our ears, that we would understand what is incomprehensible to us, and that you would open our hearts that we would be contrite before you, humbled. So, Lord, that we can feel the sorrow and feel the brokenness in our own hearts for those who need to hear the gospel. Lord, let us not be people who Talk about what the gospel is. But let us be the people who are faithful to make that gospel known for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.